0: you are listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegatesegin.com. you have a Bible with you, you will make your way to the letter of Galatians. We're continuing on in our sermon series, Freedom in Christ, the glorious gospel of Galatians. And today we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 together. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Earlier this week, as I was preparing for the sermon, I I recalled an illustration of that the author C.S. Lewis once shared in his well-known essay entitled, On the Reading of Old Books. It was an article that he wrote, or an essay that he wrote. It's a pretty well-known one, On the Reading of Old Books. And in this essay, Lewis's main point, as you can probably get by the title, was to help people see the value of reading old books, not just new ones. He said, we often struggle with chronological snobbery that we we love the new and we we don't see the value of the old. And he was making the point that there there is a value to reading old books, not just new ones, especially when it comes to matters of the Christian faith. And though this illustration is short and simple, I, I think it makes the point really well. He said the following. If you join at 11 o'clock, a conversation that, be, that began at 8, you will often not see the real bearing of what was said. If you join a conversation that began or at 11 o'clock that began at 8, you're often not going to understand all that was said. The point he, he, he was making is simple if a topic has been discussed for hundreds of years or even thousands of years, but all you're interested in is the latest bit of information on that subject, you're going to miss out on a great amount that's been said. And I think this is a wonderful illustration that just fits in with our study of Galatians. And here's why I say that. We must not, we must not as, as, as Lewis reminds us, be tempted with chronological snobbery when it comes to our faith. We must not be fixated on the here and now of the Christian faith. And we must not forget that all the questions we may be wrestling with, they're not new. They're not new questions. All the things that we may be wrestling with as believers in 2022 in the United States of America, they're not new. And if we want answers to our questions, we're not going to get them by ignoring the rich storehouse of the past. The past serves us. And Galatians, friends, is a book in which every person in this room, from the youngest to the oldest, ought to be interested in. Not only because it's an old book that discusses the foundations of Christianity, which, by the way, most likely Galatians is the oldest book in the New Testament. It was probably written before any other book in the New Testament. It's an old book. But here's why everyone in this room should be attentive to the truths communicated in this book. Not only is it an old book, it's a divinely inspired book. So therefore, we should lean in. So can I ask something of you? As we make our way through this series, I want to ask you to do something. Will you try your hardest as we make our way through Galatians to not give in to the temptation of thinking? What do the subjects that are covered in this letter have to do with me? All this talk of the law, Things that just don't pertain to me. Pastor, if you knew the things I was struggling with, what in the world does this letter have to do with me? This letter seems irrelevant for my life. If you're tempted with that, can I just encourage you each and every week, remind yourself of this. God has me here right now. In the letter of Galatians, hearing it unpacked, Hearing it applied. I need to trust him. He knows what we need to hear. and What we think we may need to hear because of what we're going through may not be immediately what we need to hear. We may need an old book to speak into our contemporary context. So let's come leaning in, ready for God to meet us. Now, one more thing before we can read this text together. I think this illustration by C.S. Lewis not only serves us in the the broad sense by reminding us not just to read the new, but to read the old. But I think this illustration also serves us in a narrower sense by helping us remember that Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 that we are about to read has a a literary and historical context. So we don't want to just jump in this morning to these 10 verses and forget there has been stuff that's been said leading up to this point. There is a literary and historical context. And to ignore either of these this morning would be to join a conversation at 11 that began at 8. So let's not do that. Let's make sure we understand what's been happening leading up to this point so that when we get to chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 and we read it, it's all making sense. So let me just remind us really quickly, and then we'll read this passage. Why was Paul writing this letter? One simple purpose. The churches in Galatia, remember this is a region, they were abandoning the message of the gospel that Paul had preached there. If you, you recall from prior sermons, that they Paul had gone to their towns, gone to their cities, and had preached the gospel, and many of them, A great many of them had professed faith in Jesus Christ. And less than a year later, the report comes to him. Not only are they abandoning the message of the gospel, but they're returning back to Judaism. That's the primary reason that he's writing. Now, what has he written so far up to chapter two, verses one through ten? Well, if you recall, before Paul can take time to defend his message, which he's going to do later on in this in this letter, He had to first defend his ministry. See, those who were undermining Paul's message had to first undermine Paul as a messenger by claiming that his ministry was man-made. That's what we've seen already from the very beginning. They've been accusing Paul of having a man-made ministry. This is why Paul has been defending his ministry since chapter 1, verse 1, and all the way up through chapter 2, verse 14. So if you want to kind of know what's going on in Galatians, since the beginning, and all the way through chapter 2, verse 14, Paul is going to defend his ministry. And then beginning in chapter 2, verse 15, all the way through chapter 5, he's then going to get to the message. But before he can get to the message, which he's eager to get to, he has to defend his Ministry, and that's what he's been doing up to this point. Now, here's what I think would be most helpful in looking at this text this morning. I actually want to break up this text, I actually want to read it in two parts, and I want to break it up into two parts under the following two headings. So, if you're taking notes this morning, here's our outline. In verses one through five, we see the controversy that occurred, verses six through ten, the conclusion that was reached. That's how we're going to break up this. These, these 10 verses together, the controversy that occurred, verses 1 through 5, the conclusion that was reached, verses 6 through 10. Let's, let's turn our attention to the first five verses, and I want you to follow along, I invite you to follow along as I read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Then after 14 years... Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Let's stop there for just a moment, and let's just reflect on these first five verses. In these five verses, we observe two controversies taking place. We must remember that. Okay, so there's two controversies taking place. One controversy was taking place when Paul wrote this letter. It's the reason he's writing this letter. There's a controversy taking place in Galatia. But in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, there is another controversy spoken of. It's not a controversy that was taking place when the letter was written. It was a controversy that had already taken place. And it wasn't in Galatia. It was in Jerusalem. So remember those two. There's two controversies. Paul's going to first focus on the controversy that had already taken place in Jerusalem. Now, if you recall, one of the accusations being made against Paul was that his ministry was a knockoff from the ministry of the apostles in Jerusalem. Everybody know what a knockoff is? You, 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 you see something that looks authentic, and really it's just an imitation? That's what they're accusing Paul. They're saying he's, he's got a knockoff ministry from the apostles. It looks authentic, but it's not. If, if we really pay attention to all the things that are being said in this letter about Paul... I think we can kind of come to this conclusion. It appears that the false teachers in Galatia were making the claim that Paul had heard the gospel from the leaders in Jerusalem. But instead of sticking with them, he's now gone out on his own. He's gone rogue. So they're saying that's why they're saying, well, Paul, you just got that from the leaders in Jerusalem. Why would that then make him, you know, a fake? It's because then, now he's doing things that the leaders in Jerusalem aren't doing and saying. And they're saying, so you started there, but then you went off on your own. That's what they're accusing him of. And we've seen that so far in chapter 1. Look, look back with me at chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Listen to Paul make his defense. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then look at verses 18 and 19. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who is also Peter, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw, but I saw none of the other apostles except James and the Lord's brother. Do you see Paul's defense? It's simple. He basically said, I have, he, he had not visited with the leaders in Jerusalem until many years after his ministry to the Gentiles had already begun. So if someone's saying, Paul, you got your original message from the apostles in Jerusalem, and then you went rogue, and Paul said, there's a problem with that, and it's called a timeline. As we heard last week, he says, my first time to even go to Jerusalem was three years after I had already been called, and I had already been doing ministry. So Paul's saying, "No, I, I, I'm not going rogue. I'm not, I didn't hear something, and now I'm going on my own. And what we see here in verses 1 through 10 is we discover that his second journey to Jerusalem, so we saw last week his first journey, now he tells us about his second journey. It took place many years after the first one, and it took place because Paul received a revelation from God. Look back now at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. He says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, though we can't say with certainty all of the historical context that's going on here, there there is good reason to believe that this revelation from God entails what we read in Acts 11. You remember, Paul was in Antioch, and while he was there, a prophet named Agabus says to the congregation, including Paul, I've received a revelation from God, a prophetic word. And he says, there's coming a famine. And it's going to affect the entire world. And and we need to prepare for it. And we need to take care of the brothers in Judea. And so Paul, hearing that, says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Judea. And if you guys want to support, I will take the support, your financial support with me. And I will give them relief and aid. And what we're told here is that while Paul was there in Jerusalem, he did something. He met with these leaders in Jerusalem, and he shared with them all that he had been teaching and all that he had been doing and all that he had been seeing. And he heard the thoughts of these influential leaders of the Christian church in Jerusalem. Now, his reason for doing so was simple. He wanted, he tells us this, he wanted to do nothing That would undermine all of his labors. That's what he means when he says, I wanted to make sure I hadn't run in vain. See, Paul's not interested in starting the Apostle Paul ministries. He wants to make sure that what he's doing is building the church and making much of Jesus. And so Paul, as he sits down with them, says, here, here's, guys, let me just lay it out for you. Here's what happened from the road to Damascus to where we are to present day. I just want, I just want to make sure all that I'm doing is helpful, it's good, I'm right on track. That's what Paul's doing. But no, notice this. Notice this tightrope Paul walks here. And you're going to see it again in the next section when we read verses 6 through 10. But it's, but it's important to see this tightrope. I don't know if you noticed it as, as we were reading. It's apparent. That Paul cared about the opinions of these leaders in Jerusalem. He calls them influential, but do you notice the way he calls them influential? He's going to do it again in verse six when we'll read it. He he calls them influential because he wants to honor them. He wants to show the, these men and their opinions mattered. However, however, he makes it clear he was not relying on their counsel as if they had ultimate authority over his message or his ministry. He's saying, listen, I respect those brothers and I wanted to make sure I was doing stuff that they thought, Paul, man, I, we, we don't understand that. But I wasn't going to me and saying, Peter, obviously you're the first pope, uh, so should I do this? No, he says, Peter's no different than me. James is no different than me. We all answer to the Lord Jesus. So he cares about their opinion, but he's not catering to their opinion. He's not allowing them to tell him what he should or should not do. And look what happened while Paul was there in Jerusalem with this Gentile named Titus. He's not only there with Barnabas, his traveling companion up to this point, but he's there with this Gentile, Titus. And in verses three through four, we find out what happens while they were there. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, which which is a sign for the Jews, though he was a Greek, meaning he was a Gentile. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they so that they may bring us in to slavery. You see what's happening? While Paul was there talking privately to these influential leaders in the early church, a segment of this group, we're not told how many of their number was. It could have just been a few. It could have been, you know, a, a, a good number. But, but a group is there, and Paul uses very strong language to speak of them, not only in the English, but even in the, in the Greek. He calls them false brothers. He says they secretly were brought in. They slipped in. They were spying out our freedom. Paul, what do you really think about these guys? It's, it's pretty clear that he tells us that while he was there talking among them, some in the room, they began to raise questions about Titus being a Gentile. And they said, wait, um, Paul, we have a question for you. It's Q&A time, right? Uh, uh, Paul, uh, has, has he taken on the sign of the covenant? Well, no, he's a Gentile. And they have a problem with that. And so Paul clearly states who these men were and what their motives were. These men who pretended to be disciples of Jesus so that they could have an opportunity to bring up a scenario just like this. They were waiting for an opportunity like this to say, Paul, this is the kind of stuff we've heard about, and we're going to address it in front of everybody. Let's talk about Titus. Tell us about Titus. Titus, you tell us, have you you experienced this sign? And pay careful attention to the response of the leaders in Jerusalem. Don't get the, the apostles, Peter, James, and John, mixed up with these false brothers. Because notice what these leaders in Jerusalem do. We're told they did not seek to coerce Titus into following through with the act of circumcision. They didn't say... Well, Paul, we actually agree. It was just this group of brothers, this this group among the leaders that that were saying, hey, Paul, whatever you believe about Jesus, if someone is going to be in a right relationship with God, they're going to be justified. They have to carry on with the laws of Moses, including circumcision. So, Paul, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. This guy's got to do that. There's no debate. That's what the Bible says, Paul. You know that. You you know the Bible just as well as any of us. These these phonies had made their way into the meeting. They they tried to influence this Gentile by telling him to be circumcised, and they did it for one reason. Look at the end of verse 4. They slipped in to spy out our freedom. That we have in Christ Jesus so that they may bring us in to slavery. Why were these men there looking like they really cared to be there, but only there for sinister motives? They were there to spy out this message they had heard about. You're saying... Paul, that if you preach the gospel to people, all they have to do is believe, and that's it. No, they've got to do more. And Paul's saying they 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 were trying to spy out our freedom to bring us back into slavery, and he means to bring them back under the demands of the old covenant. And listen to to what's being said. These Christians were free from the law's demands. Yet their freedom in Christ was a problem to some. And these false brothers wanted to place these Christians in the bondage of slavery once again. And Paul said, over my dead body. Look at the beginning of verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission Even for a moment. Paul said I didn't cave an inch. I didn't bat an eye. I didn't waver for a second. I stood firm. As soon as I heard what these brothers were asking. I made it abundantly clear. That was not going to happen. See, Paul went to bat for Titus, but not for Titus only. Look at how verse 5 ends. Why did Paul not yield to these leaders? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Do you see what Paul's just doing, what he just said? We've now come full circle from the controversy in Jerusalem. Back to Galatia. Why did Paul tell them this story? And why did he tell them that day when those brothers demanded something of Titus that God did not demand? I I dug my heels in and I said, not as long as I'm here. Why did I do it? Not just for Titus' sake. I did it for you brothers. What are you saying? I, I did it for you. I did it for you so that you too could stand firm in your See, Paul knew that if he caved to the pressures of these Judaizers in Jerusalem, it would undermine his message and his ministry to Gentiles everywhere, including those in Galatia. By standing firm in the freedom of the gospel, Paul was preserving the truth of the gospel. That's what we take away from this first section. By standing firm, that's what Paul's doing. By saying, "I, I we, we, didn't even give in for a moment." By standing firm in the freedom of the gospel, Paul was preserving the truth of the gospel, and he was not only preserving the truth of the gospel for the Galatians, but for us today. See what happened that day in Jerusalem. Not only served those Galatians; it serves us. Today, now that brings us to the second half of this passage, the conclusion that was reached verses six through 10. Follow along now as I read the second half of this passage, starting in verse six. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me contrary. When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, being Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Beginning here in verse six, notice what Paul's doing. This is why I broke this passage up. It can seem confusing. This is one of the hardest passages to get your head around because Paul starts something and then he has a caveat and a caveat inside the caveat. Well, he's now returned to this idea. Notice notice verse two and verse six In verse two. He he has this parentheses where he talks about those who are influential. Look what he's doing in verse six. He's now returning to those who are influential. He's he's getting back. He had to stop and talk about this controversy that took place in Jerusalem when these Judaizers, now he's coming back and saying, okay, so exactly what happened with the apostles? You talked about these false brothers, but you you did go see these guys. What did they they say? What did they do? And Paul's now letting us know about his interaction with them and their observation of him and his ministry. And what we discover in verses 6-10 through is that the Jerusalem leaders actually stood in solidarity with Paul and Barnabas, even though their mission was not identical. Even though they said, you know, Paul, we're, we're, we're sharing the gospel among Jews, among people who are God-fearing, know the law, and are probably still going to live out aspects of, of the old covenant. And that doesn't, that's not the ministry and the mission field you've been given, but brother... There's solidarity here. And Paul mentions in these verses three things that Peter, James, and John did once they met Paul. The first thing we're told in verse 6 is that they did not seek to make changes to his mission or his message. Look at the end of verse 6. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So the first thing, Paul wanted to get really clear I met these guys that you're saying I, I, I'm a knockoff of. I sat down with them, and let me just tell you what they said. They didn't say anything that added or took away from anything I've been doing. So let's just get the record straight. It's not what happened when we met. That's not what happened. It's instructive, once again, to watch Paul honor these men in an appropriate way without making too much of them. And one of the reasons he's doing that is not only for his own sake, it's for the sake of the Galatians, who the, the false teachers in Galatia seem to be making much of. Well, is that what Peter said? Was that what is, would James agree? And Paul is saying, well, I respect those brothers, but at the end of the day, who are they? God shows no partiality. It's who, who is Jesus. And are we answering to him? That's what Paul's doing here. Secondly, this is what we see Peter, James, and John do. They acknowledge that his message and his ministry was on par with their own, even though it looked different. Look back at verses 7 through 9 again. On the contrary, not only did they not add anything, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. See, the conclusion these pillars, as Paul's calling them, the conclusion they arrived at after hearing and seeing Paul and Barnabas was this, their mission was no different than their own. Their mission was no different than their own. Even though one ministry focused on Jews and the other ministry focused on Gentiles, their ministry was the same. Men like Peter and Paul, notice this from verse 7, men like Peter and Paul were both entrusted with the same gospel. Both were entrusted with the gospel. And not only were both men entrusted with the gospel, both men were equipped by God to carry out their missions. He didn't just say Peter was given the gospel, I was given the gospel, but the same God, who worked through Peter, is working through me. So both were entrusted and equipped. That's what they're acknowledging. Therefore, because the apostles could identify the grace of God at work in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, we're told they extended to Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Now, we don't know exactly what that looks like. But it's clear what it's saying. I don't know if they gave him a fist bump, a secret handshake, a hug. You know, he got a pen or something like that. But they say, you're one of ours. You, you may go to the Gentiles. We go to the Jews. But you're a brother. Everything about what you're doing, you're a brother. We get it. We see it. We have no. There, there's no division here. This idea of them having the right-handed fellowship, it's, it's an expression of solidarity. Now. Look at verse 10, because this is where we see the third and final thing they did. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. All, all, all Paul does here is say, OK, these brothers didn't say anything I was doing was right or was wrong or needed to be adjusted. They gave me the right hand of fellowship. The only thing they said is they recommended, hey, brother. Would you make sure wherever you go, whatever ministry you do, just like we're doing among the Jews, you do among the Gentiles, would you remember the needy? Would you just remember the needy? And Paul makes it plain here at the end of verse 10 that this request to take care of the poor was not something new to him. It was already his heart. And it was already something his ministry team cared about and was doing. So... Here's the big question: Why did Paul communicate the details about this particular situation that occurred in Jerusalem to these Christians in Galatia? He knows they're fall, they're being tempted to fall away to return to leave Christ to return back to Judaism, and as he's defending himself, he tells them this story what's the purpose? what's the point? Why tell them this story? Paul, who cares what happened to you in Jerusalem? But it mattered. Here's why he told them, because the false teachers wanted to rob them of their freedom in Christ. And they did so by undermining the message of Paul, by undermining Paul. So Paul defends himself and he defends the truth of the gospel. Look at the end of verse five, by preserving it. He defends the truth of the gospel by preserving it. Friends, though our current situation may look really, really different than the believers in Galatia, there's a valuable lesson for for us as a church. This is where we, once again, have to believe. How how do we love our neighbor? And share the gospel and reach the lost in Seguin, Texas in 2022. You know what? We don't need a new plan. We need an old book. (laughs) And there, there is something very relevant for us here this morning. And here it is. In order to be faithful and fruitful with the gospel truth, we've been entrusted. We must do the following things. We must proclaim the gospel, which we've already seen talked about. Look back at chapter 1, verse 23 from last week. Paul's preaching the gospel. But another thing we must do is preserve the truth. Chapter 2, verse 5. So, how do we preserve the truth of the gospel? That's where I want to close this morning. I want us to think okay, what does this passage have to say to us today? Well, it's telling us that if we want to be faithful and fruitful as a church, we must not only proclaim the gospel, we must preserve it. Well, how do we preserve the gospel? By defending it against its two enemies. So I want to let you know about the two enemies of the gospel. Those two enemies are legalism and license. Those are the two enemies of the gospel. Legalism and license. Think of it like this. The gospel of grace, the gospel of freedom is like this road that leads us to God, but on both sides of the road, there are two ditches. The ditch of legalism and the ditch of license. And both of them are the enemy of the gospel. If we're going to preserve this gospel, we must be aware of these two enemies. We must not, on this road of grace, this road of freedom, fall over into one ditch only to get out and go to the next one. So let's talk about what are these two ditches. The first one is the ditch of legalism. Now we're going to talk about this far more in the days ahead, but for now, here's how I would describe legalism. Legalism is this. The law becomes central to your relationship with God because you think it earns merit with Him. The, merit, the, the, the law becomes central. That's a key word. Central to your relationship with God because you believe it earns merit with Him. If I do good with God, He goes, I like you. And if I have a really bad day, He goes, mm, hey, try again tomorrow. No matter what we believe about Jesus, that's that's what legalism is. It's that tendency to believe the law is central to God. How I respond to the law is going to mean that that it's going to merit something with God. So that's, that's one ditch. But there's another ditch. It's the ditch of license. What is the ditch of license? It says this, the law is to be ignored in our relationship with God because it doesn't merit anything from him. It's all about grace, so I can live like hell. Woo! The law doesn't do anything. So, therefore, I'm just gonna leave the law at the door and just celebrate grace. Woo! Both of them, both of them are a ditch. And though they look differently, how they play out in the life of a Christian. And how they play out in the life of the church, friends, listen, they have the same root. This is central. If we don't see that they have the same root, you know how people battle legalism? By thinking, I need a little bit more license. You know how I battle license? Need a little legalism, need a little bit more law. But do you know that both of them, though they're on opposite sides of the road, they have the same root. You see, legalism and license distort the law of God because they have a distorted view of the God of grace. What do both of them do wrong? They both view the law wrong because they view the God of grace wrong. Their problem isn't just how they view the law. The problem is how they view God. Both of them have an inaccurate view of God. Now, here's why I make mention of both of these errors to close out our message today. The rest of this letter will be confronting both of these errors head on. I wanted to kind of give you a heads up. What's coming? Because both of these enemies, both of these ditches, we're going to see them again and again. And because of the reason Galatians was written, Paul's not going to mince words. He's going to come at legalism and he's going to come at license full steam. And he's going to show us things we've never seen before about these two. See, the rest of the letter is going to confront both of these errors. But the rest of this letter is going to show us these two ditches. And it's going to show us that both are a constant threat to the gospel we've been entrusted. Now listen. This is so important. Don't miss the irony on display in this passage. Did you catch the irony? It's not just the irony of chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, it's an irony that's been going this entire time. What is this irony? Those who were calling Paul out in error were those who were in grave See, it's easy to perceive error in others all the while being blind to our own error. So here's my suggestion for us all. Don't hear talk of legalism and say, brother, pastor, thank you for preaching. that." I can think of people right now that need to hear it. And don't think, "Ooh, I'm glad we're finally going to deal with license because I know of some people that need to hear it. Don't hear any of the rest of Galatians and think, boy, I'm glad we're not like other churches that are legalistic. Whoo, sure glad we're not like some of these other churches in town. They're just filled with people full of license. Glad we're not like them. Let me just state this plainly and let me state it as starkly as I know how. Every Christian and every church is always being tempted with both legalism and license. Lifegate Church is not exempt because of something in our statement of faith and our doctrine that makes us exempt. You can get justification by faith right theologically and still be struggling with legalism. You can think you you care about the holiness of God and be getting license wrong. Every church and every Christian, every day, you're going over into one ditch and over into the other. Every day, you're going to have to hold on to the wheel. Because the wind's going to blow you over here and the wind's going to blow you over there and you've got to keep steady. And here's how we keep steady, friends. This is how we keep steady. LifeGate Church, we preserve the gospel we've been entrusted by focusing on our freedom in Christ. That's the point of this sermon series. We don't beat legalism by going to license. And we don't beat license by running to law. You know what we do? We stand and we look at our freedom in Christ. That's the answer to both. That's how we stay out of either ditch. So, friends, may we today and as we make our way through this book, may we look. May we look with amazement at Christ and the freedom we have in him. And as we do, not only will we be aware of the ditches on both sides. But we will ride in the middle. We will ride in the middle, enjoying the wind in our face. The the, the freedom we have in Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, help us to know this freedom. If we don't. There are those here today that do not know this freedom. Oh, Lord, may you. May you awaken in them a desire. To long for it. To search for it. And to find it in you. May we be a church. That is not only aware of the two ditches. The two enemies. May we be a church. That is fixed on our freedom in Christ. May we be a people. Lord, That walk in that freedom. That sing about that freedom that will love that freedom, that preserve that freedom. And may, Lord, it make us a church that is faithful and fruitful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.